Hello and welcome to Alone Upfront, the podcast for teachers doing it by themselves. My name's Steve Mortimer. With me is uh, Chris Mortimer. Hi, Chris. Hi, Steve. How's it going? Going pretty good. This is episode one. Um, this is where it all begins. And uh, yeah, let's get straight into it. We need a, we needed to find a name for this podcast. And I was just thinking about the idea of calling it Alone Up Front. Why? Because being a teacher, well, being the kind of teacher that I am and you are, you're very much alone up front mm. in every sense of the word. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what, what do you think? Well, I suppose a teacher is always alone at the front of the class. Well, exactly. But you've taken it to a new level. And I have as well, I suppose, by being alone in another country yep and you could say i think a lot of we're both university teachers feel alone because um there's no actual training out there that's right and i think that often if you think about a teacher and where a teacher works how a teacher works you tend to think of them as part of a system Mm. a school system maybe a local education system and this podcast is made for all those people who find themselves teaching really on their own um, maybe they intentionally ended up doing it. Maybe it was an accident, a happy accident. Um, but they're left there thinking, wow, here I am, up front, alone. And and how do you handle that? There's an expectation, especially if you're working in a foreign country like I am, um, where you show up and people just think, well, you know, you can do it, right? You can teach. And maybe you even think that yourself. And I mean, that's fantastic. It's it, it's the way to go. But you do lack something that that maybe a more conventional teacher has there's no there's not really the support structures in place absolutely and you can't yeah you can't just slot yourself in as part of the the overall machine and me and you've both experienced over the past few years that it's been tricky to to figure out how to do things how to become a a better educator Mm. if you're doing it doing it on your own and this podcast is really designed for anybody in that situation no matter how long they've been doing it maybe maybe people listening to this have been doing it for 15 20 years maybe they just started last week and they've realized with a sense of unfolding horror my word (laughs) (laughs) how how, how am i what on earth have i got myself into Mm. so really what we want to do is talk about how we've figured stuff out on our own and how you can still become a really effective teacher how you can come to absolutely love the job you do even if you're not one part of a bigger organization and even if you don't have all that support that maybe you think you might need absolutely well all of that resonates with me and you just mentioned unfolding horror well i <laughs> speaking speaking of just just horror not even unfolding horror i remember when i arrived arrived in japan the first thing i had to do was give a uh, give a speech to the whole school to a thousand students um, wow. <laughs> some of it and they said can you do some of it in japanese so um <laughs> so yeah not a classroom situation but i'm sure any teacher not even not just teachers in foreign countries um can can kind of feel that and also i like the point about autonomy teaching is highly autonomous because you are on your own in a classroom um so we've got to if 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 we're not lucky enough to have that formal training we've got to have a set of resources or ideas or a framework uh to bring to the table and i suppose over time and experience we've been teaching 10 15 years in this situation we've kind of developed that 
Yep, that's right. I remember also a, a rather smaller scale incident when I first started in my first week. I live in Germany, where I've been teaching in Berlin now for quite some time. And in the first lesson, I sat down and I thought I had this wonderful idea. I had a small group of students and I'd say to them, okay, to get, you know, to, get to know each other, let's imagine we've gone to a desert island and you can only take two possessions. Mm. So I want you to think of what, what two possessions would you, uh, would you take and then explain why. And we're going to do all this in English. And they looked at me with horrified faces and I thought, wow, this is brilliant. This is the most challenging, engaging <laughs> yeah. task any teacher <laughs> has ever come up with ever. And then successively, they they went round and just in monosyllabic one word answers, just listed off everyday objects, yeah. <laughs> and and the task was completed after about three <laughs> three minutes. And I looked at my watch and thought, I'm supposed to do two hours. Yeah. <laughs> where, where on earth is this going to go next? I thought you were going to say one of them said I would take the alone up front podcast. Well, I mean. I wonder if they would have been interested then, or maybe some of them have been teachers now. They certainly didn't. They didn't see. But this was in what the year two thousand, literally. Yeah. I mean, maybe yeah. maybe we should maybe we should. Um, so okay, let's see. That's what the podcast is intended to be about. Mm. It's intended to provide ideas, support, um, structure for anybody working as an educator in a slightly solitary context Absolutely. I suppose and a few a few stories and a, a sense of um, community if not camaraderie we're trying to we're Indeed. trying to bring all of these things through yeah 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 so with that in mind we should possibly say a little bit about ourselves we've given a, a few clues as to who we are just so people can sort <laughs> of get where we're coming from um, my name's Steve like I said and I work in Berlin at a University of Applied Science um, I actually have one foot in each uh how do you say it? In each pie? No, that's wrong. Oh, I've one got foot in each camp. One foot in each camp, yeah. yeah but fingers in many pies. The issue is that I um. Can you have fingers I in did, camps though? And that too. I I did my formal teacher training in the UK uh, to teach English. So I did what's called a, a postgraduate certificate of education. Completed that and then worked in a school in London uh, for a few years as a teacher of English. Previous to that, I had taught as a freelance teacher in Germany, teaching English as a foreign language. And then following my experience in London, I came back to Berlin, where I've now worked as a, a university lecturer, but well, a lecturer, but not at a professor level. I'm, I'm teaching English as a skill in the kind of supportive English modules that my students have to teach. So it's weird. On the one hand, I experienced the fully structured uh, but being fully part of a, of a structured organization um, in a school. I also got the formal background of a wonderful uh, PGCE, mm. the Postgraduate Certificate of Education at the University of Bath. And here I am now doing it on my own again and have yeah. been since 2008. So what I noticed uh, speaking to colleagues of mine now in Berlin who are also working on a freelance basis, I'm not a freelance teacher, I work for the university, but I work in that capacity as figuring out my own module content, figuring out my own way of doing it. And they really um, often get those requests. Say, well, how you know? How do you know? Where do you get that stuff from? Yeah. Where I so I, I go from place to place, and I have the small groups, and sometimes adults, or it's younger people, or there's like higher level and lower level. And where do I get it from? And and I wondered that myself because if I hadn't have had that um, that foundation of teacher training in the UK, mm. I also wonder where I would be now. Mm. And that's so so that's my that's my position. But what what about you, Chris? How do you um, how do you find yourself? Here? Uh, yeah, well. Fascinating story, your story, of course. You've taught in so many different places. Um, 
But yeah, well, in terms of my teaching experience, I uh, was um, an English language assistant teaching in Paris. Uh, so that was on my year abroad uh, when I was doing my undergrad university degree. And that, that was actually the most difficult teaching I've ever done. And it was my mm. first teaching job. And then subsequently, I've already mentioned the Japanese experience and taught for two and a half years in a high school in northern Japan, actually, in uh, Fukushima Prefecture, which people unfortunately know for the earthquakes and the nuclear meltdown now. Uh, but I, I, yep. I was there before all that. And then subsequently, I've taught in, rather like you, Steve, I've taught in a university uh, here in the UK, teaching mainly business. A few people might know spreadsheets is kind of my speciality. So, yeah, I, I, I think our paths, paths are kind of similar in, similar in some ways, but the unique thing about what you've done is you did the PGCE and then, mm. and then, and then went back kind of towards the TEFL-type teaching. Mm. So I think people will ask, what made you leave the PGSE and the conventional secondary school teaching? Mm. Mm. Well, it, it was an interesting time because I had... I'd previously, I've been back and forth between the UK and Germany a lot. I studied German. And as I indicated, I had taught here in, in Berlin freelance and then went back to the UK, did the formal training, taught there and now back in Germany. And um, when I returned to the UK to do my PGCE, it was really out of a sense of, I don't know, a sense of duty. Mm. It was a sense of, um, I, I, I'd, done, I'd been doing freelance teaching here in Germany, but it wasn't really taking off in any big way. It was very much just to, to pay my rent and to, you know, to keep going. And in terms of of building a career it seemed it didn't really seem to offer that much to me personally at that stage which is why sure. I went back and thought I need I need to do this um properly as it were yeah. which is kind of kind of kind of the 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 that's the mindset that we're going to argue against, I suppose, on this mm. podcast. The idea that you're not a proper teacher until you've had some kind of formal training or that, that's yeah. that's sort of er erroneous. On the other hand, when I when I went to start the PGCA, I felt I felt like, oh, I know how to do this because I'd been teaching freelance and I'd just, you know, sort of fig figured it out for three years previously. But I learned so much um, mm. at uh, University of Bath back then. And then obviously doing my, um, doing the, 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 the school placements that you have to do and then doing my, um, my NQT year, my uh, newly qualified teacher year um, that you need to do to get the qualified teacher status. That, mm. That's a hell of a learning curve. And um, the question was, yeah, your question was, why then go back here to Berlin? And that was very a very personal decision for me. I got a, a job offer working full-time at the University of Applied Science that I'd previously worked at on a freelance basis. Yep. And f it was really the chance for me to, to live and work with a full-time secure position in uh, Berlin, uh, which was not really possible or dif difficult to come by back when I first came here but then became available later and I thought well I guess I can probably leverage some of the things that I've learned in London mm. I'm sure I can probably use those working in an adult education context working in higher education what I didn't realize was that all of the stuff I learned um, when I was training to teach kids in a school was massively massively important and useful for then teaching adults um at a university mm. and that the learning the teaching and learning process and managing the wonderful process of accruing knowledge uh that it doesn't actually matter who you're working with whether they're professionals yep. 
or their students or their Absolutely. pupils or their little kids. I think that's something uh, that's something we want people to take away from this. I suppose if you're you know you don't have to be a teacher to be listening to this. You don't have to be a PGCE root type teacher. You might be like no. you might be like us, gone a bit down the TEFL mm. route, or you might just be in an organisation working with groups of mm. people and yeah. do, doing in-house training, or maybe you're you're an external consultant doing training, and mm. you need a set of ideas to help you do it. Because sometimes we're, we're, we all find ourselves being teachers um, on a on a an ad hoc basis it's um it's kind of a misunderstood and maybe underappreciated art form mm. where somebody that's never really never really had to do it suddenly gets told in a, a new stage in their career okay jump up now you're gonna do this presentation then we'd like you just to run a little workshop or something mm. or we'd like you just to manage this um this question and answer um phase or we'd like you to maybe organize a little a, a little group task yeah. to help the group bonding and suddenly you're in there like oh wow okay i'm i'm i've kind of I've been made, I've been put in charge of facilitating some learning and, and how do I do that? Yeah. And if you find that happening to you with any degree of regularity, then this hopefully will be, will be useful for you as well. Absolutely. I think a lot of people would find that terrifying. And I know I have absolutely found that terrifying, that situation where you're, you know, teaching for the first time, mm. you know, whatever it might be, mm. there'll be a lot of people out there uh, in that situation. I think what we're saying is, if you just learn a few of these important principles, they can have a massive impact and give you a lot more confidence in that situation. That's right. That's right. And I mean, so should we should we kind of turn to the the topic, the main topic yeah. of this initial podcast? The um, what we thought we'd talk about is is how things are changing, specifically in in adult education, mm-hmm. um, and how teachers nowadays find themselves confronting different problems if they're working in a an adult education or higher education environment mm-hmm. um that's not to say that the podcast will exclusive will um in the future focus exclusively on higher education but um it often is the area where these lone teachers alone upfront type teachers find themselves mm-hmm. so we thought it might be interesting to chat about how the university teaching experience has changed in the past, say, 15, 20 years, and what anybody uh, looking to a bit of uni teaching, maybe teach a few hours a week, what they may be confronted with that they're not expecting uh, because things may have changed since they were in that sure. situation themselves. Yeah, that sounds bang on because we, our careers, have spanned a period of incredible change in higher education. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think, well, the, the first thing to understand for anybody looking to do a bit of university level teaching is that in pretty much all of the Western world, definitely Europe and the US, it's been the objective of, of every government to try and increase the amount of participation in higher education. Mm-hmm. Um, move it from a situation where in the, in the 70s, 60s, you had a small percentage of the population um, uh, moving on to tertiary level education, maybe maybe 10%. And every government is really looking to to raise that. Has been do- doing it for decades, looking to raise that percentage to to over fifty percent. Uh, so you know, half of the people, the young people in its um, society, are looking to graduate with some kind of academic degree. 
And in Europe, we've had the process of standardization called the Bologna process, where now every university mm. in the EU um, has standardized its system of qualifications to offer the master's level qualification and the bachelor's level qualification. Sure. Um, and what what th- that may sound like a relatively dry political demographic change, but it's has a massive impact for what it means to teach mm. at sure. a university. Sure. I mean, we could take this, we could take this back to, you know, in the eighties, we weren't teaching in the eighties, but we witnessed, you know, we, our parents were teachers and we witnessed mm. at first hand this process of standardization in schools, um, yeah. with the national, with the national curriculum. And, yeah. uh, and that really transformed the, you know, the conventional teaching job, I think, what we've seen is this is going on in higher education now. The difference being that with, with, in the UK, the, the introduction of the national curriculum was an attempt to, to raise standards by getting everyone on the same page in terms of what they were teaching. Whereas the, yeah. um, the Bologna process is really about improving um, transferability and flexibility. So it's not so much they're wanting to standardize the content. What mm-hmm. they want to do is standardize the form um, of the, uh, the form that the learning takes. So how many hours you spend doing what okay. and how many and, and how that workload is then um, converted into a system of credits, which means that you accrue a certain amount of credits that equates to a certain amount of workload, which equates to a certain qualification. I mean, in the past, in Spain, they had a different word to what they did in Germany and France. Yeah. It was different. All of these things were, there were different, was similar sounding words flying around. A diploma in Germany was not the same as a diploma in the UK. And um, it was, it was very confusing. Mm-hmm. So the idea was if we going to have uh, young people um, wanting to travel, work in different countries and study in different countries. That's generally held to be a good thing. That's one of the ideas that the EU was really founded on, freedom of movement for people. Uh, but it's no use promoting that if students cannot switch yeah. and do a semester at a different university because sure. the nature of their study just doesn't 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 match up at sure. all. Or if they wanted to go and get a job in another country and their qualification wasn't recognised. For some reason. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Now everybody knows that if you've if, if you're from the EU and you've got a bachelor's level degree, that will equate to a certain number of credits, two hundred and ten, I think it is. And um, pretty much every country knows that you know four credits equates to a certain number of hours workload a week across the semester. So it's it's great in terms of um, um, transparency within within the education sector mm-hmm. and it's good for teachers because they they have a better idea now what the expectations are of their students in terms of of workload but the um the other aspect i mentioned earlier is this idea of increasing participation in higher education so uh, broadening inclusion getting more people to consider um, higher education as a, as a route for them mm-hmm. now it sounds like a great idea. I mean, who would argue against more people studying? I think in some countries there's been a, a commensurate worsening in, in vocational provision, but that's probably a topic for another time. Um, but broadly speaking, I, I think very few people, sort of voters or political parties or, or lobbies, have argued against higher education being available to more people. So it's it's kind of it's kind of seen as a win-win, and 
the issue it presents to teachers, though, is that um, at university level, or the uni- the idea of a university is that you're taking the most mm-hmm. academically capable yeah. members of your society and making them even smarter. And that was historically, if we look back at the, the earliest universities in the UK, we're talking about Oxford and Cambridge, the late, later University of London, later Durham. Um, the thinking was you can best support the learning of these exceptionally able um, people simply by talking to them, by um, having prof- prof- professors working um, on books, on projects, on research, and having the undergraduates uh, spend time yeah a couple of hours a week maybe simply talking to their professors or just being just um, being talked to just being spoken to in a, or being, in a or being situation yeah yeah well I mean, even the idea of lectures i think came a little bit later it was okay. very much a case of if if you put uh people of professorial excellence in the same physical space as very capable undergraduates then the learning will take care of itself mm-hmm. so there was never really uh, i mean the, the me and you, uh, Chris, we grew up um, with a modulized system. It wasn't um, standardized across Europe, but we did do modules. But um, if we go just a little bit earlier, um, university studies were organized in a much more ad hoc way. Mm. Um, professors would would request papers to be written by their students on a fairly... Um, in a fairly random fashion, really, mm-hmm. they'd be graded according to um, that professor's personal ideas, and there would wasn't really even formalised modules or, or credits or any of that kind of yeah. stuff, um, which is all fine, and, and I think I think it worked really well. But what the, the problem or the issue occurs when you try and map that way of working onto a situation where it's not the top five or six or seven percent. Sure. Uh, of, of, of society showing up it's maybe half mm. it's half of, of, of a country's young people and there inevitably you're going to have a much wider range of abilities because sure. we're not t- t- talking about the most academic so so we have we have a problem there we have a system who which formerly comes from a place where it was designed to cater to one audience and now you know, in the grand scheme of things, quite quickly is being forced to broaden that open, mm-hmm. broaden that out, and, and 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 facilitate provision to a wide range of abilities. And this is the problem because I think that in schools, in the um, the secondary and the primary education system, so this would be um, kids up to the age of seventeen, eighteen. Um, this big switch never took place. Um, provision, sure. you know, pr- provision of of education up until sixteen for everybody has been pretty much a hallmark of of, of post war societies in the Western world. So that it, it has that this broadening hasn't taken place. So um, any school teacher will know that differentiating your teaching so that everyone in the class mm. every learner has access to it is an incredibly important thing but this and and teachers at school level at primary secondary level they are obviously trained to do this Mm. um, and it's very much part of the conversation as you try and develop your skills in that profession now this training or even this awareness of how important differentiation is and how important it is now to appeal to a wider range of learning styles and a wider range of ways i don't know how clearly that message has got across for the higher education teaching experience and i think we have a situation where you still have the the old style of this um rather limited form of interaction with students and it doesn't work very well for those students that are not maybe in that 10 percent most capable mm-hmm. um band of ability and this is this is a real problem because this training 
isn't really coming from i think that there's lots of people like me and you working in hydrogen that have sort of realized this and, and i i realized it having done my formal training as a as a school teacher but this is not widely understood and this is one of the things we're going to talk about again again in the podcast i think mm. how do you how can you cherry pick the best techniques from primary and secondary um education and use those in a way that fits the older age of your learners but really maximizes the the differentiation possibilities um that you learn when you learn to teach in a in a school yeah yeah sure sure um yeah well there's a lot there's there's a lot you've touched on that and um so but i think what you're basically saying is that um it's been on government's agenda to broaden participation in higher education we used to have five percent. Yep. Now we have up to fifty percent. That has fundamentally changed um, the proposition. That's fundamentally changed what it means to be a teacher because mm. we're working with with different people. And um, mm. yeah, in the uh, in primary secondary education, people realised this a long time ago. Maybe in Victorian times, in the nineteenth mm. century, when people said, "No, everybody's got to go to school now." Maybe uh, maybe school teachers back then were kind of thinking, "Damn, we've got to we've got to differentiate activities now." But I'm sure they weren't using the word differentiate, and they probably weren't <laughs> doing activities either. Um, but yeah, but you've just said, yeah, the idea of differentiation in schools, yeah, teachers are comfortable; they're applying this idea. We need it in universities if we're going to make if we're going to make any progress. Could I could I just throw something in that I think is yeah. is so relevant? So alongside this and something that has really made the situation even more difficult to deal with at teachers is the um, marketization of the system in the UK, at least, and to a, to mm. a lesser extent in Europe. So, so mm. in the UK, you know, when, when we were doing our degrees, our undergraduate degrees, we were maybe paying a thousand pound tuition fees, which back then seemed like a huge amount anyway. But now yeah. students paying up to nine thousand pounds. So not only have you got these students coming in to to a system that might not be designed for them, they've mm. actually got expectations. They've got expectations and they want value for money. So this is making a difficult situation even more difficult. Just talking about it, I can see why it's so hard, university teaching. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, each country has a different context when it comes to the paying of fees. Um, but so, and so, so we'll have to try and cater to all the potential listeners that in the situation that they might be in. But yeah, I mean, for me personally, here, here one of the reasons a lot of people come to study in Berlin is that there's very low tuition fees. Yeah. Um, but yeah, in the UK, they've always been higher. So then you have a real, um, it's not only a desire for learning, it's a desire to obtain value for money. And that can manifest itself in different ways. I sometimes have heard from, from colleagues and friends of mine that, um, an approach which values differentiation, because it feels a little bit different from the classic um, professorial university approach, 
some students wonder whether they're actually getting the value they deserve. There's a sense that I'm paying a lot of money yeah. for this and I'm finding it, you know, wor worryingly engaging. And I, yeah. I, expe I, expect, I expect to really have a, a teacher who I can look up to and, 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 and I can barely understand, I really yeah. struggle with, because that's what university should be. So, it's, I mean, it's, it's a bizarre, it's the bizarre the way that expectations uh, manifest themselves because... Uh, <laughs> All we have is our own school and university experience to draw on. Mm. But because everybody went to school and a lot of people went to university, everyone thinks they know how it should be. Mm. And and it's but things have changed and it's difficult to, to understand that um, if you were at school 20 or 30 years ago, then schools aren't like that anymore. And if you were at university, uh, 20, 30 years, universities aren't like that anymore. They have had to change. And so your expectations um, may be sort of slightly off or rather you know parents talking to their kids um any, anybody that's studying right now maybe you have some students listening who uh just started studying and then their, their parents are asking them how it how what happens and stuff and the parents are saying well, wow, well when i studied it wasn't like that at all we did this and this and this and everyone is is caught between the memories of the past and an awareness that things have to change for the future I think um, one more thing that we should, one more fundamental idea we should we should touch on as we discuss the changing role of the higher education uh, teacher is the rise of um, what in the UK were called polytechnics sure. um, and now tend to be called universities of applied science and how that whole situation panned out because um, it's worth being, I mean, again, depending on where listeners are working, they may have found this is a, an interesting an interesting topic as well. In um in the UK, well in most most European countries, it was realised at some stage that um if you want to broaden higher education provision, you can't. I mean, the, the, the people that figured this out, they were they weren't idiots. They said, well, you know, you, you we can't just imagine that everyone is at the same level of ability as the top ten percent. Mm. So we have to differentiate the provision not only at a classroom level but at an organisational sure. level. So why yes. don't we offer? Yeah, why don't we offer a route which is not your academic university course of studies, but is also not a traditional apprenticeship, but more uh, uh, an applied sense of higher education learning. So this would be, um, yeah, the Polytechnic um, or University of Applied Science. Now, pretty good idea, really. And um, in the UK context, we saw the establishment of lots of um, polytechnics in the late 70s and the 80s. Mm -hmm. um, and in Germany, where I work as well, you had a similar thing. Here they're called Fachhochschulen, as opposed to Universitäten. And you had uh, the, the two-way system. But then, and this is where things get a bit crazy again, in the 90s, um, everyone decided this that splitting education up this way was, was not a good idea and that polytechnics should gain university status. They shouldn't have this kind of label as being uh, less worthy mm -hmm. than universities uh that happened in um in the early 90s in the uk and in germany it happened a little bit later um so now we have a, a really weird situation you've got in the uk in most large cities two universities um one of which is a former polytechnic um and in germany you also have now universities and we have a different word in german hochschule these are what were well, essentially universities of applied science mm -hmm. and then you have another problem because now you have university of applied science trying to figure out what is their role sure. in this whole thing sure. um we have we have university well and of course i mean and the bigger question is what should higher education be doing um in the broadest sense what what do the the, the adults of the future what what do they need mm -hmm. and i mean 
obviously the world of work, careers, professions is changing massively. Um, each country has its own cultural uh, cultural standards. Again, I'm going to keep mentioning the German context because it's where I work, but traditionally German was a country where you had to study the exact thing you wanted to be later. If you wanted to be accountant, you have to study a form of accounting. Mm. Um, if you want to work in a certain industry, you have to study exactly that. And no country in the world, I think, has got as many highly, highly qualified people working as engineers and companies. If you go to an average German engineering company, all of the doors of the offices will reveal that they have doctorate level degrees, sure. those engineers that work at that company. Um, but is this the way the future will always go? And universities have been asking themselves this question, what kind of skills do they need to um, um, give their graduates? Mm. And then what do University of Applied Sciences do? I mean, there's, there's a sense that everything seems to be moving more more applied like mm -hmm. like even universities now trying to emphasize the applicable nature of the of the tuition they give so these are real world skills not just something abstract on the other hand the university of applied science are trying to move in the opposite direction and trying to prove their academic yeah. um credentials and at the same time the world of work is changing massively if you obviously the rise of automation the rise of international mobility sure. of labor means that um, no one's really sure if half of the jobs that we train our students yeah. for right now mm. are even going to be necessary in, in 15 or 20 years. Absolutely. And so, I mean, for, for the purpose of this podcast, I suppose, I suppose what we're trying to say is that, um, um, okay, a, a few conclusions we can draw. First of all, anybody looking to take their first tentative steps as an educator, as a teacher, alone up front in a higher education context, um, beware of implementing what your professors may have done with you mm. when you were studying. We're in a different age, and even if it was only a few years ago, um, the paradigm of the um, learned professor... Um, dispersing his or her knowledge to eager students mm. uh, that is not really I think where it's at nowadays sure. we need to be looking to far more interactive group work based um, gamified maybe mm. uh, challenge based learning because that will appeal to a wide range of learners by the same token we are not talking about dumbing things down or making everything into a, a multiple choice quiz um these this way of this way of approaching teaching and learning doesn't have to be simplified um, and it can challenge the most able in the class just as it can uh, appeal to a wider range of abilities so so that's people have to bear that in mind and then the second thing is i think people should should look at their educational contents and try and contextualize it within the society in which they're operating in the country they're operating if they're in a university of applied science a more applied um, institution then Talk to your colleagues insofar as you have them. As we know, we're alone up front, but we're, we can still try and seek out support if it's available and find out how does the university, how does your organization view itself? Where is it trying to go? Is it trying to move up and access a more academic um, status? Is it trying to improve its uh, provision of key skills, of applied skills, or is it some other combination? And maybe you can become part of that process as well. And, and those changes that are happening on the macro level, that are happening sure. across the society and the whole globe, there's no reason why they can't be influencing the micro level of your classroom mm. and your learning environment. I think that if you can start linking those things together, number one, it makes you feel less alone because you realize you are part of something massive, something global, and it might help you unblock certain tricky moments. You're trying to establish 
a concept you're trying to explain you're trying to figure out what kind of activity could unlock a certain um, amount of learning maybe you can find the answer to that by taking a step back and looking at um at the bigger picture mm. i suppose yes yeah absolutely um we've touched on we've touched on you, you mentioned international mobility and i know yeah. i know we're moving towards conclusions now but i think one yeah. thing um that we should we should certainly uh, point out is um, the nature of the nature of the student body. It's much more inter- international. Yeah, uh, and you just mentioned you know people might compare to their own university experiences. I know the university I teach at, which is where I was a student as well. Um, the student demographic has transformed, and it's much more international these days. In particular, many more students from Asian countries and from a mm. very different education culture. Mm. And this has changed the general atmosphere on campus. And, you know, we could talk about the pros and cons, uh, maybe maybe another time. Um, mm. But it certainly changed the atmosphere on campus and the atmosphere in the classroom. And just to pick up on what you're saying about, you know, the learned professor mindset, I think... There's actually mm. more students, certainly in my teaching, compared to 10 years ago, there's more students who've come from the Asian context who are actually expecting that learned professor um, approach um, in their university teaching. And then, and then you're kind of dealing with giving them something else and kind of selling it to them as better than that. Yeah. Um, so certainly the... You've got to be comfortable work, certainly working with people from other countries. And then, as you said, being aware to some extent of the, of the particular perspective they'll be bringing uh, to the classroom. Yeah. All of these things are going to help. The, the amount of differentiation you have to do, not only in terms of ability, but in terms of cultural background and expectation and communication form. And lang- language it's ability it. as well, like not just ability yeah. in the subject, la- language mm-hmm. ability. Mm-hmm. So you've got That's native right. speaker level to kind of competent level all the way down to quite a modest level of English, really. So that's another yeah. uh, dimension of differentiation we, we have to think about. Yeah. And these are just some of the things that we intend to discuss in the future episodes mm. of this podcast. Um, it's a real adventure right now to work um, as an educator. And I think for those ones um, up front alone, um, they've, they're, they're, they're the tip of the spear in some ways because um, the, these big changes that we're seeing, they are happening on an international level. And if you're, in, if you're alone up front, as a teacher, maybe you are in a different country from... Um, from where you grew up and um, it really doubles doubles the challenge I think we've been talked about is 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 exponentially increased when you're walking in a foreign in a foreign environment as well so yeah these are these are all the things that we'll be talking about in the future um and it's worth noting as well we're going to focus not only on these sort of large um large-scale macro developments, but a lot on the micro uh, techniques you can be using in your classroom so we intend Absolutely. to cover uh tips ideas uh, approaches concrete things that you can use in your class tomorrow um but that's all for all, all for the future i think we should um we are nearing the end now yeah. of episode one so i'd s- like to say yeah, Steve, what, what, okay. what should the listeners expect in um could we set a bit a bit of a long-term direction 
you know what what could the, what could the listeners expect next time and um in the next few podcasts well um i'm i i'd like to talk about um my experience in the in the classroom and um in in that in my case it's the adult education context but like i said it applies to lots of different places we're going to start off by looking about some of the fundamentals of what dictates successful lesson planning and successful yeah successful facilitating successful learning mm-hmm. that involves looking at um the fundamentals of assessment first of all what it what it means to summatively or formatively mm. assess your students and that connects with something called metacognitive awareness mm. and um, this idea of students abilities and the awareness of their abilities and the, how that determines their learning and then how we can use this to shape um, the teaching uh, the well the, the learning progress that they make over the course of a lesson yep. or a week or a month or a semester or indeed an entire set yep. of studies that's what we want we'll go, sure. go um, first of so all so it's almost as if we're taking you know from the perspective well my perspective is I haven't actually done any formal teaching education at all so yep. I haven't done a yep. PGC but I have heard of some of these words like summative versus formative assessment mm. differentiation metacognition mm. and mm. just through talking to you steve just through talking to you about what some of these words mean it's mm. actually given kind of shape to some of the things i was doing anyway in my teaching given me more confidence and helped me apply some new some new things so it's going to be really useful for teachers who don't have any conceptual framework but have at least some real world experience we're going to be able to really give give you a roadmap um yeah you know use, using these key concepts like yeah. summative formative etc etc mm. that's that's going to allow you to organize all of that experience and knowledge you've amassed yeah. over the years give you even more confidence in your in your alone upfront teaching situation yeah. And I mean, there's so much stuff that everyone's doing right. Okay. Yep. People, I mean, there's so many educators out there um, getting to work every day, making awesome lessons Absolutely. happening. And they are loved by their students. They're loved by their learners. Um, and maybe you find out that what you've been doing um, is exactly the right thing to be doing. And here's the theoretical name for it. But who cares? Exactly. You figured it out yeah. on your own. And that's great. That's great to find out as well. Um, but sometimes you need a bit of the glue to connect these things together. Sure. Or maybe there'll be one piece in the puzzle that isn't quite fitting together. That was my experience. Certainly, I would learn a few things, then realize, okay, I'm doing a lot right. But if I just did that, ah, now now it all comes together. Yeah. Now I get it. So hopefully, um, it can become a regular listening experience, which is which is uh, fun to listen to. Hopefully, and useful for anybody um, who's looking to make learning happen. Um, and and you know, is in a situation where they're basically doing it alone. Well, you're not alone anymore because. Uh, <laughs> well, you have our podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And um, so, do do we know the topic of the next one? Um, the next one is going to be um, the role of assessment. So uh, it sounds boring, but um, assessment is where it all begins, mm, and kind of, that you need to you need to understand that before we really go into anything else. So, assessment is going to be the headline for the next podcast. Fantastic. Look forward to it, Steve. It's been a pleasure. I've, I've, I've learned a few things. I've taken some notes. and Yeah, it's, it's been great. It's been great. And I'm looking forward to the next one. And everyone that's tuned in, thanks very much for listening. Um, you can grab this podcast on uh, iTunes and Stitcher so far, but we're looking to broaden that out. And uh, yeah, 
I guess I guess we're done then. Yeah. So Chris, thanks very much for your input. It was a great chatting. Pleasure. Thanks, Steve. And I'll I'll see you next time. Okay, and all you teachers out there, up front alone, you're not alone anymore. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.